This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we look at new films playing in cinemas and connect them with older films in the similar genre or director or, uh, well, just some connection to the past. And we help (laughs) hopefully introduce you to some films you may not have heard of. My name is Karsten Knox, and I am a film blogger, writer, and all-around film nerd. And my name is Stephen Cook, and I am a local arts writer with Local Express. Oh, I should probably mention the name of my blog. It's called Flaw in the Iris (laughs) at halifaxbloggers.ca. And this show is called Lends Me Your Ears, and today we're going to be talking about uh, watching paint dry on the screen. So, Stephen, we're we're <laughs> that was a great intro. I gotta give you full marks for that one. Thank you. Um, I'm very very tired. Yeah. <laughs> the next couple of shows are gonna be a little punchy. Uh, but that's good. We get good shows when you're that's when true. you're punchy. Uh, yeah. So so basically, we're talking about the creative urge, artists on the big screen, uh, and we are doing so because uh, all playing in in cinemas in April, uh, actually in March and April, Weirdos, the uh, Bruce McDonald film. Written by Daniel McIver and Maudie, uh, directed by Aisling Walsh, the Irish filmmaker, written by Sherry White from Newfoundland, and so they're both very connected to uh, you know the the local maritime Atlantic Canadian uh, uh, landscape to uh, to our creative uh, uh, community, and so yeah, it felt like a good time to talk about these films. So, in the interest of full disclosure, I have not seen Maudie. Uh, I've seen the trailer. And uh, I'm certainly familiar with the story of Maude Lewis, uh, and uh, I've been to her painted house in the gallery. Um, yeah, yeah, me too. It was, uh, it was where we went after the screening at the Atlantic Film Festival. That's right. That's right. After they uh, introduced their program. And, uh, and uh, I had to chase people around, tell them not to talk to the Herald Scab. So <laughs> that was an interesting day, um, who was covering it. Uh, but um, the... Uh, the um, the story is certainly a powerful one, and there's been, certainly been documentaries about uh, Maud and her 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 um, her life, her her humble beginnings, and uh, her use of art to overcome the difficulties in her life. Um, I first heard about her through my uncle. Oddly enough, my uncle Mike uh, was a big fan of hers early on. I guess he used to buy her stuff when he was down that way. I guess around Digby County, mm-hmm. I think is where she lived. Yeah, that's right. And um, you know, I think had some some. Uh, cursory acquaintance with uh, both her and her husband and uh and you know and i I found these paintings charming i I found them um lively and full of life and uh you know uh, considering that she had physical difficulties and um you know certainly uh, problems uh involved with her her marriage uh you know the 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 brightness and light and life in her paintings was certainly a stark contrast to the the life that she uh, led in her painted house uh this tiny cottage that she and her husband shared for so many years um you know, I, yeah, it's it's true. It's not a uh, and and their their lives in this film are depicted. I mean, they both had very tough lives, and and they were not, especially him, Everett, uh, played by Ethan Hawke. He he's he's not a good communicator. He's not a pleasant man, and he's he's abusive. And it's it's tough going. Uh, but but the performances are are just terrific. So. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like I, I learned a lot from, from this film about her and about the struggles and, 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 but there's, there's also room for wit here. So that's something else I like. aside from the colorful, 
the, the color that her paintings brought to the house and to her work in general. Uh, there is actually humor. She's got there's a dry wit that under underlays a lot of this to make it bearable to sit through this because because it's it's pretty it's pretty bleak stuff. Yeah, I was going to see how far they went with uh, with Hawk's portrayal. Of, of the husband Everett because um, or Evie I think she actually called him but um, the uh, because it's you know all reports you know from from people that have written about her in the years following her death don't have a ton of kind things to say about him and his attempt to kind of piggyback on her legacy and even create try and like, copy her paintings and <laughs> make a few bucks that way and you know even even in in, in death she couldn't seem to get a break it seems and uh, you know I, I thought well you know like is I mean, Ethan Hawke is is a good actor, and he's not afraid to go dark. We've seen him do it before, but like, how how far are they going to go with this character and still make it something that isn't going to feel like just two hours of solid misery? Yeah, no, I, I think I think they succeed in that. I think she is such a, a great performance performer. Uh, Sally Hawkins is wonderful here. She owns this role, and uh, we warm up to her pretty quickly. Seeing the kind of difficult she has difficulty she has with people in her lives, not just with her husband, but other family members, and and just struggles to to make herself be heard. Uh, and of course, it takes much longer for us to sort of warm up to him. But I think eventually we do, partly because we see him through her eyes and we see that there is something there. Uh, it is a. Uh, it, it's a it's a powerful film. It's a film that is really should be recommended for the performances or for those who are interested in this story. Uh, interestingly, also they um, uh, they 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 shot in Newfoundland. Uh, so yes. so people who are from Digby County looking for for you know scenes that they recognize, they they may struggle a little bit. Uh, for the most part, inside the house and around the house, I don't think you would necessarily uh, be distracted. It's it's there's a, but there are a couple of uh, sort of establishing shots that are clearly from around the bay in Newfoundland because the landscape is quite different from Digby. But but really, I, I don't know that I would I would have any 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 other problem with the way it was shot. Uh, it's it is really it's well done, and I think that the problems. It's funny they, it it does it does grab hold of the the things that sink a lot of biopics, which is that it takes place over a long period of time. But. Um, but the strength of the performances, I think, overcomes a lot of that. And I really also like that they shot in two seasons, at least. Like, there is definite snow on the ground for the winter stuff. And then there is seasonally summery spring stuff. So so that helps you sort of really grasp the fact that time is passing. It's not just about old person makeup, which is one of my personal Phew. pet peeves. <laughs> yes, yeah. same here. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the, uh, the I mean... It, I think some people try to make a bit of a controversy over the fact that they weren't shooting the story of beloved Nova Scotia folk art, you know, kind of the the you know, the epitome of, of Nova Scotia folk art, which is a, a pretty powerful and ongoing movement here in the province. That uh, that they weren't making it in the province where she lived, but of course it held, you know, it was produced by Newfoundlander, and you know they have it's part of a new, kind of a Newfoundland Irish production deal. I mean, there was a I think there were attempts to tie it into the. The implosion of the the tax uh, the film tax credit here in Nova Scotia, which is probably partly true in some ways, but but also uh, there are other forces at work that uh, brought the uh, the film to Newfoundland. And um, I think uh, I think maybe having an Irish direct, maybe having an out an outsider, <laughs> you know, one of those uh, sort of uh, taciturn folks who don't like to come from a ways, but having somebody from not not from the region uh, make this film may have helped 
give it some balance and and the fact that it's a director who's dealt with difficult material in her past films you know the irish have a way of dealing with darkness and uh injecting some some light into it in the weirdest corners and and that's definitely the kind of touch that's called for for this story yeah absolutely absolutely now uh, let's talk a little bit about weirdos which you have seen uh directed by the great bruce mcdonald sort of the i i think about bruce mcdonald as kind of like the he is he is the tragically hip of, of Canadian filmmakers. He is beloved and appreciated here, though I, I think less so outside our borders. Uh, but he has made a bunch of, of great, scrappy Canadian films, including Hardcore Logo. Uh, he, he knows his way around a road movie, which is what this is. It's a picture postcard of 1970s Nova Scotia in stunning black and white. And I think uh, I really... Uh, Director of photography Becky Parsons should be congratulated for how gorgeous this film looks. Um, but yeah, Bruce McDonald, Roadkill, Highway 61, Hardcore Logo. And uh, he has worked with the, the screenwriter Daniel McIver before in a great film called Trigger. Uh, and uh, it's a it's sort of a sweet coming-of-age picture. It's about uh, a young man and his, his purported girlfriend... Uh, traveling from Anaganish up to Sydney because the man wants to move in with his sort of dis- he's distance from his mother. Uh, and uh, and so he wants to go and find her and he has this idea. She's this creative sort of fount of, of coolness. And uh, she spent some time in New York City and he has this passion for for New York artists and he has his sort of mentor, his mental sort of dreamlike mentor is Andy Warhol, but not Andy Warhol uh, as he keeps pointing <laughs> yes. out, but it seems very much that he is. And uh, yeah. And then it's, it's about uh, him sort of coming to grips with, with not only the truth about his parents, both of his parents, but it's also, you know, the fact that, that it's, it's about, you know, uh, teenagers can see their parents in, in pretty, rose-colored glasses, I think most kids can, and and coming to realize that their parents are fallible is is a big lesson. But also about, in terms of his own sexuality and and where that is and his relationship with his girlfriend, it's a a lovely film, and I think it can sit very solidly amongst other Cape Breton road movies, which is its own, you know, uh, (laughs) its own genre, and there are a few of those, including Going Down the Road and Candy Mountain, Mountain. Uh, and it's it's great. The casting is terrific, a lot of local actors. Um, I want to say a shout out to the the girlfriend, Alice, played by Julia Sarah Stone. Uh, She looks like she might be a Rankin sister. She has that look about her. (laughs) And uh, yeah, but all the actors are terrific. It's it's a really sweet, wonderful little movie. I I really enjoyed Weirdos, and uh, you know, it's certainly a bit of a flashback for me. Uh, you know, I mean, I was born in 1967, so I was about, you know, 10 years old or so when the events of this movie are supposed to take place. So like all the music, you know, we, you know, I remember hearing on top 40 radio or, you know, CHNS was kind of like the softer side of top 40 and they played a lot of, you know, the, you know, that carry me by the stampeders and Edward bear and all this stuff. I mean, this stuff was ingrained in me at an early age. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, those those Nova Scotia back roads uh, before they built the 100 series highways. You know, I still have memories of of traveling those. Uh, you know, as a kid, you know, running around to Parks Canada sites with my dad. He worked for the the, the federal government. So, um, you know, and going up to Cape Breton and and on a on a moment's notice and that kind of stuff. So th- there's a uh, there's a lot of this film that I kind of uh, kind of connected with and and it's nice how it kind of dovetails a bit with the, the other mcdonald road movies like highway 61 and, and roadkill and the, you know the fact that it's in black and white you know it's it's so obviously canadian <laughs> in in so many ways um 
you know, you know, do you, do you go to Toronto? Or do you go to New York? What are, the, what, are the, what are the decisions you make to get out of here? And uh, you know, and 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 Dylan Authors is quite good as kid as well as the kid who's like trying to figure out his identity and and you know he knows there's a, like this is pre-internet, so like he just gets whispers of of ideas of the world beyond uh, beyond the Maritimes. And and you know, I, I sort of remember, you know, it's funny because he he's in the back of a car showing Interview Magazine to these sort of hoodlum teenage. Friends of his of uh, of Jul- of Alice's and um, and I you know I remember they they used to get Interview magazine at the Dartmouth Library and I used to go down and I had no idea what I was looking at you know this is the magazine that Andy Warhol published so it always had a cover in his style I don't know if, you know because there's always a, the, the you know, how much of this actual work did he do um, or you know how much of it was done by his underlings but it had you know the, the, that kind of candy colored cover you know where they alter photographs and inside are pictures of people hobnobbing in the New York nightlife and you know you'd see celebrities you recognize kind of rubbing shoulders with people like Viva and, and all these people from the Warhol realm of things and it was just a, you know it seemed like this weird adult Disneyland and I, so I can see why you know like if he came across one of those magazines it'd be like a like a treasured uh, you know tract from the Holy Land or something like that and 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 that's kind of what guides his idea of what lies beyond and probably his idea of, of Warhol because of course Warhol is a character in his mind played by Reese Bevan John who's fantastic uh, and uh, you know I I kind of wonder if you saw that episode of The Love Boat where Andy Warhol was a guest which actually happened folks it was the 100th episode uh, go see if it's on YouTube but uh, yeah there was a, an episode of The Love Boat where Andy Warhol is kind of playing this exaggerated version of himself and and uh, you know the idea of artist as, as personality kind of shines through anytime he's on a cam- before a camera, I guess. So that that makes it all very attractive. And the, the, just the, the thought that his mom might be involved in that world, might be a link to this outside world is just such a tantalizing idea. And it's it's really well handled. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, yeah, Molly Parker, I guess, won a Canadian Screen Award for her uh, performance. And uh, it's, it's great. She's so reliable. Great, great quality performance and pro- quality cast all the way around. I, yeah, I think, uh, I think it's still in cinemas. Uh, if it's not, uh, you know, keep your eye out for it if you haven't seen it, but uh, yeah, it, it's these, these are the movies that sort of uh, prompted us to go back and look at movies about artists. Mm. And, uh, you know, when, when you, I remember when you suggested that we should look at, at musical biopics, I was like, Oh gosh, you know, <laughs> they're so cliched, but I wound up seeing a bunch that I really like. Now I had a similar feeling when we decided to launch into this. Even though I like both of these films that sort of uh, inspired us to do this, uh, the the artist biopics that I have seen uh, inevitably cleave towards seem to be they inevitably cleave towards um, you know a, a formula more than maybe even more than musical biopics. You know the the visual artists tend to be curmudgeons and tortured misanthropes. Uh, they have they usually have a nemesis, someone who's either more famous than they are or. Or maybe they, more often than that, usually a muse who is tends to be a woman they treat badly and then she leaves them alone with their brushes and they <laughs> feel terrible about it. And, uh, uh, and this was my main complaint of what is otherwise a pretty good movie, which was uh, Mike Lee's Mr. Turner starring Timothy Spall. It just really cleaved towards all these issues to the point where aside from the man's work that he left behind, why are we learning about him? Because he's so curmudgeonly, so unpleasant. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, it just he's just an irritated and irritating 
creative who treated almost everyone around him badly. Uh, and I've seen this repeated in in movies, you know, and, I, and not to say they're all bad, but I, a few of them that came to mind that I have seen, Girl with a Pearl Earring about uh, Colin Firth plays Vermeer, right. a surviving Picasso, Anthony Hopkins, uh, Goya's Ghost, Javier Bardem, and Natalie Portman. And it's terrible. Don't go and see that. <laughs> uh, that's the Milos Forman uh, biopic. There's Peter Greenaway's Night Watching, which is about Rembrandt. Uh, now, the one I, I would say that I did like was Ed Harris, uh, and he did he was Pollock. He directed, wrote, and starred as uh, Jackson Pollock. And I think that's one of the stronger films on this list, even though it does tend have to same. tame issues <laughs> again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so I would say that there's a few that I want to mention that are about female uh, artists, and inevitably they tend to upend a lot of these these conventions because women, of course, have had a much diff- more difficult time getting recognized in the visual arts world. And so when they decide to make a movie about one of them, you know, you really actually see, oh, okay, you know, this is they're able to to contravene some of these cliches. I'm thinking, of course, of Frida uh, mm-hmm. about Frida Kahlo starring Salma Hayek. I think in a career defining role, and it, it felt like a breath of fresh air to the genre. So, yeah, I mean, and there's anyway, there's more that we're going to talk about as we go through this this conversation. But those were the ones that immediately jumped to mind as ones I'd seen before. That I was like, okay, so I I get what what's going on here with these with these movies. Well, I, I guess maybe uh, you know, and and Madi goes through a lot of that checklist. But I mean, you know, we all anybody who lives here kind of knows the story. And that's actually what, you know, she had this physical disability and, and she had this uh, abusive husband and she had to overcome all this stuff to 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 kind of make her art. And even though she didn't become, you know, a, a household name necessarily while she lived, uh, certainly she's created a look that's kind of been latched onto by the powers that be for one reason or another in this province. Um so it's kind of it, it's it's kind of odd how you know what you know about an artist's life often cues to some of these uh, ideas. Mind you, she wasn't abusive to others, and she wasn't that's a, a disagreeable right? person. Yeah, she, and, she she had her her exterior know. external forces against her, arrayed against her. Uh, achieving anything were, were so substantial uh, and that that actually I, that these kinds of cliches I almost don't think apply no. I just feel like just by upending that those those specific those those uh, you know gender issues I think make it makes it seem like a different kind of movie yeah and now you make me want to see Frida again because I remember really loving that film when it came out that yeah was, me too that uh, you know Hayek hasn't really had an, an opportunity like that since I, that I can think of uh, that you know that her roles have not been the greatest since then, but that movie was so vivid and so you know bright on the on the big screen, and it you know told a really powerful story. Uh, and it's you know, and because these these aren't always uplifting stories, they really often aren't. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, w- you know when I guess you're supposed to feel uplifted by the art that came out of this misery and turmoil, but it's sometimes it's be quite a slog to go through, as we'll find out as we look at some of these films in our upcoming segments. Well, to start off with this segment, uh, this is kind of one of the granddaddy of tortured artist movies. And, you know, a a movie so renowned, it uh, gave its title to an Iggy Pop song that was later used as the theme for Train Spotting, which now has a sequel playing in theaters as we're recording this. It just Segway City. I know. It's the connective (laughs) tissue, folks. Um, We're talking, of course, Lust for Life, uh, the story of Vincent van Gogh. Uh, <laughs> it's funny they pronounce his name a number of different ways. In I know, the film. like it's almost like a it's like a weird in joke. Yeah, um, and normally I would just say Van Gogh, just because it sounds. Even though it's 
pronounced correctly, it sounds so pretentious when you throw in that little glottal thing at the in, in, at the end of it. But um, certainly, uh, even people who don't know anything about art know about Vincent Van Gogh because uh, you know his paintings. You know when they have gone on the market, which of course hasn't happened in a while. I don't think you know like most of them are in museums, but uh, you know the ones that have gone on the market and sold for tens of millions of dollars and pushed the the new limits of, of what art is supposed to be worth uh, in the world. And, you know, for a guy who, who barely ever sold a painting while he was alive, uh, it's kind of the, the irony of, of, you know, your greatness will come after you're dead sort of thing. And this, this film is kind of like the, the epicenter of that idea and one of the ultimate expressions of it, but, uh, and certainly fulfills a lot of the cliches of the art, uh, biog- artist biographies that would follow. Yeah. I think, I think also that idea that, uh, a little bit in play here is the idea of the celebrity artist, right? That we, mm. I think, I think it's it's about the work, sure, but it's also about the story and and uh, understanding the the fact that that this particular artist was unrecognized during his life. I think people buy into that. They 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 uh, they feel like you know it's part of the romantic drama and and tragedy. Drama and tragedy, uh, you know, of it. The beauty and tragedy really is what a lot of this is about. These films are about. And this Vincent Minnelli film, uh, I had not seen it before until just the other day, uh, from 1956, uh, stars Kirk Douglas. So you've got this Hollywood star at, at the time. I think he was pretty big deal. I mean, oh yeah, he, for he, sure. He had it written in his. I know he had it written his contract that he had to show his. He had to take his shirt shirt off at some point during the movie. I don't know if he takes it all the way off. We definitely see his chest. We see his a lot. chest a few times. Yeah, you know, when he's uh, suffering with the miners at the start. That's and right. His and, shirt keeps getting ripped mysteriously. <laughs> uh, and he's he's uh, he's so much. Uh, he's such a ham. I, I mean, I really like. I've always liked Kirk Douglas, especially in Paths of Glory. I think he's great in that, particularly where I feel like Kubrick was able to dial down some of that. Mm. Uh, natural, uh, his natural thing where he, you know, growls at the camera and everyone around him. Um, but uh, he's a bellower, you know, and, and uh, but I think in this case, he plays this character who is so emotional and so reactive that uh, that he just, you know, which and who eventually has a, a, a genuine mental illness, uh, the reasons for which, you know, could have been manifold. It could have been in his blood. It could have been all the the paint he was uh, the lead in the paint that he he was when he licked <laughs> his brushes. Uh, but but it's um, you know I, I I it's it's entertaining just to see him chew the scenery and uh, you know it's but it's yeah again it, it does fall into this trap of a lot of these stories. Uh, I, f- I found it interesting how time passes so quickly. We get to see a lot of his life, yet he seems to change not at all. Uh, but you know we have scenes where where babies just don't age uh, over time. You know <laughs> and and, uh, and other elements of it that uh, that are are fun to sort of little pick apart a little bit. Uh, another thing. I enjoyed was that 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 uh, Vincent's brother Theo is played by James Donald, who is British, and most of the cast, with the exception of Anthony Quinn, are British. And they this is something actually. I mean, I don't find it bothers me because I've I've made a point of saying that 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 <laughs> yes. that English accented. Uh, where 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 uh, English or American actors do uh, affix accents in order to play French or some other other language, you know, going <clears throat> recently silence where where British and American actors tried to to do Portuguese accents. I mean, I find that kind of annoying because their accents never line up. Whereas in this case, basically everyone just speaks in their own accents and it's fine. Like yeah. it, it is, it's kind of funny, but it's actually a convention I prefer rather than the like the fake accent. 
Well, I think there's a certain level of artifice to be expected, especially when when they go from like realistic, uh, like Dutch and Belgian locations to a soundstage where, where they're having a, he and uh, his cousin, who he has a fondness for, are having a picnic. And it's clearly like it looks like they're on the set of Brigadoon or something like that. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a Hollywood picture. And, and, and uh, you know, they do go to great lengths to try and have a realistic feel in the scenes where he's out in the fields painting and they they do go to some of the locations uh that he painted um as much as they can yeah um, I, I enjoyed that for sure and it's uh it's shot in cinemascope uh, at a time when the the you know you can every time they pan over a scenic landscape you can see the distortions in the lens because uh widescreen photography on a massive hollywood scale anyway was still relatively new so um but uh we watched it on a beautiful new blu-ray by the way if you get a chance it's out there it's 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 reasonably priced from Warner Brothers home video but um it, you know it's the best way to see this film because they do you know they do try to kind of and we we talked about this at the time about how these these films often try to make the film look like the art in some ways and uh, they do this with kind of dusky colors and and kind of hazy outdoor hues and they maybe even kind of make it just a little bit blurry just like the just like the 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 dappled paint strokes of a of a van gogh painting and and all that kind of stuff so uh, it's 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 certainly visual. Directed by Vincent Minnelli, who is, who is known for uh, a certain amount of visual splendor in his films, uh, from from the big Hollywood musicals to things like Meet Me in St. Louis, and and uh, and a wonderful soap opera called The Cobweb. You want to see overacting? <laughs> uh, I, I I think I direct you to The Cobweb, which came out I think shortly after Lust for Life, which is set in some sort of um, uh, rest home sanitarium type hospital where. People argue over the drapes with full intensity. It's, it's. I'm not even kidding. I'm not making that up. There is an argument about drapes in this film. Um, so I guess Minnelli was the kind of the right guy to, you know, bring this kind of passion to the screen, and then he's well matched by by Douglas. Um, uh, you know, from what I gather, I mean, Van Gogh was kind of a an inward pointed man kind of unpleasant from i mean people there was a woman who lived to be 114 who had memories of him uh buying supplies at her father's canvas shop or something like that uh you know when she was a child and she remembers him as being kind of unpleasant disheveled and and uh you know and and so that's kind of i I think those are the kind of memories that guide these portrayals that uh you know that, that you know, he's he's a hard guy to warm up to, and so they have to kind of make you believe that it's the art that was the important thing. But you know, he's also real interested in suffering. <laughs> it yes. You know, initially, you know, we we he wants to be a, a missionary, so they send him off to one of the most miserable mining communities in Europe, and he decides to, you know, just be as miserable as everybody else is to kind of feel their pain and 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 relate to them. He and, has a falling out with the church and as then, a result because yeah, you know they they feel he's. He's he's not respecting the church, so uh, he kind of his love of drawing pulls him into uh, into painting, and uh, and you know the, the whatever illness uh, was driving him seems to pour out onto the canvas in a way like uh, like nobody had ever seen. And uh, you know I, I think the film does you know aside from Douglas's performance and the the kind of third dimensionality of how it pops up off the screen uh, for better or for worse. I think it also does a pretty good job of showing how he developed as an artist and how, um, you know, he was this part of this new generation that's trying to look at the world in a, in a different way and not just literally paint whatever they saw and make these kind of yeah. postcardy pictures. I think my favorite part of the film is the sort of scenes with him and other artists as they sort of compare and yeah. contrast and try and one up each other and, and uh, this sort of, 
friendly competition between these people and and it allows for us to sort of get a sense of the scene like like uh, uh you know what the when uh Gauguin shows up and uh um you know and and uh Anthony Quinn is is quite a presence say so he won an academy award for this role he's he's not in it a lot but he does definitely make himself known and and their friendship becomes very uh, sort of a key part of the sort of central part of the story and I, and I really like that I, I like mm. those those are my favorite moments where where there there's this this community of artists and you see that they're not always getting along and they're not always supporters of each other but occasionally there there are and I mean that's another thing about these films when that this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum that they are in fact connecting with other artists and and I I, I enjoy that part of it I and that's maybe yeah as I said my favorite part of lust for life um, yeah Quinn is great here it's 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 I mean he's not one of my favorite actors but I have liked him in things but then mm-hmm. there's somewhere he's just like oh so over the top and and uh you know so it says a lot about Douglas that he can make Anthony Quinn seem subtle yes as, that's as, right as he plays Paul Gauguin and th- and their friendship is kind of like the center chunk of the film you know the, the, the early stuff is sort of the early tortured years and and you know getting a hand up from his brother to become a painter. And then this friendship with Gauguin is apparently what pushed him to find his voice, as it were. Um, you know, and then the latter half is that long, slow descent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, and to, uh, you know, and finally, spoiler alert, his suicide. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, the Gauguin stuff is probably the best part of the film where he's actually relating to another person who kind of gets him, but also maybe thinks he goes a bit too far. Yeah. And, and that's the push and pull that, you know, makes the, the middle chunk of the film interesting. Um, I You introduced me to Moulin Rouge, not the recent Baz Luhrmann version, but the the 1952 version by John Huston. And I understood, actually, when I look back, that there have been a couple of other films with this, this Moulin Rouge title. Oh, there's a few, yeah. Yeah, but this one... Uh, this one is interesting. It, it came out uh, a few years before *Lust for Life*, but uh, of the two films, I think I enjoyed it more. Uh, it, it's it's set in Paris, and it's all about Toulouse-Lautrec, the famous painter, poster artist, and uh, and you know about his particular struggles as an artist, uh, and and the sort of. Uh, the rise and fall of many characters is not I, one thing I, li- I liked about the film. It wasn't just about him. It's like there's a number of characters we see sort of through the film going through their own arcs, uh, and we come we stumble upon them at different times and find out you know in, in different fortunes. Some of them are riding high in the in the dance halls, and some and then later are in real trouble. And uh, it's uh, I really like the Parisian locations. I love John Huston's uh, typically unsentimental yes. directorial choices, and. Uh, you know, and and the sort of cynical toughness in Lautrec's character, I thought uh, Jose Ferrer played a really great role. Uh, lots of familiar faces in the film, including a young Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, both of whom have roles there. Uh, and uh, yeah, and I also enjoyed that they he cast Ferrer playing his own father, which is not <laughs> something you see much these no. days, except in comedies, maybe. Uh, you know, I think the only person in the film who really rubbed me the wrong way was Zsa, Zsa Gabor, who I found, whose speaking voice I find a little hard to hard to take. She just, I just find her a little, ugh, like there's something about her that doesn't, <laughs> do, it just makes the this the my makes the hair on the back of my neck stand on end a little bit. Yeah, and it certainly doesn't match whoever they got to sing for either. But, no, it doesn't. But she was playing a diva, so I yeah, mean, you yeah, know, if sure. you're gonna Zsa Zsa Gabor diva, it, it, it makes sense on on some level. I I really enjoyed this film. Of course, Houston is my favorite director, so. Um, you know, his approach to this world, I really appreciated, you know, the, the look of the film, Oswald Morris does stellar work, uh, as the cinematographer. It has this, 
you know, this kind of dusky, soft color palette about it that kind of matches the paintings. Again, you know, another film that tries to match the look of the artists involved. And, um, you know, and the parade of characters is quite fantastic. Even even the ones that just show up for a scene or two, like the the, the dancer at the Moulin Rouge who's got the exaggerated chin and nose. I noticed who, that. Yeah, I was like, what what's what's going on there? Fascinating like fascinating guy who, yeah. who does appear in some of Lutrec's paintings. Um, you know, they probably try to make him look like the paintings, which were probably more exaggerated than real life. <laughs> so it's, you know, because yeah. this is just sort of a on the brink of photography becoming a thing. There are photos of Toulouse-Lautrec around. Uh, mm. You know, there are lots of photos. There's lots of photos of him in like funny costumes, which I find like dressed up like a clown and stuff. Like mm. he, the man clearly loved to party um, and, uh, you know, had had no illusions about his disabilities. The fact that he was, he was short because his legs broke, um, you know, uh, as a child, they didn't heal properly. And, you know, as I looked into his, his real life, I mean, the film touches on a lot of it. I mean, they try to, they, you know, they can't really call certain women prostitutes, for example, because of the production code. But, he, you know, he was known to frequent prostitutes. And, and uh, that was probably one of the things that hastened his demise, aside from his alcoholism. Um, you know, and I found out that the reason his bones didn't heal as a child, because his parents were cousins and his two grandmothers were sisters. So, uh, ah. so there's a, there's a, uh, kind of an inbreeding thing going on there as well, which the film doesn't really explore because that would be a little out there for a film from from that period. Um, and you know, I don't think it comes up too much in in later dramatic portrayals either. It's funny, like maybe maybe Toulouse Lautrec is is ripe for a revisit. Uh, that's not that uh, it, it doesn't involve Baz Luhrmann. I don't know, but um, but it does uh, evoke this world rather nicely. Uh, and and you get the rise and fall of it. Uh, of the, the belly pock, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, with the characters in his life, you see on kind of hit the skids towards the end of the film, as the Moulin Rouge becomes so successful that it loses all of its charm, which yeah. you know is, is something that you see. You know, it's like that that old saying: uh, nobody goes there anymore; it's too crowded. Right, <laughs> I think right. A, a Yogi Berra is in my belief. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, it's a um, it's a pretty lovely film, and I, I was glad to have discovered it thanks to you know your suggestion, and I I feel like I I need to see more. Uh, John Huston movies because he really did uh, attack a lot of different kind of genres and different kinds of films, but he had a, a certain style that is is goes right through his work. Um, but I, I um, uh, also you know of this genre maybe worth giving a nod to is uh, Irving Stone's The Agony and the Ecstasy. That was one of the Irving Stone was the writer of the book that the film ad adapted. Of course they would use the author's name if he was, a, you know, a big enough, you know, uh, uh, Leon Uris's Exodus kind of thing. Yes, you know, that was course. the style yeah, no, of that, the day. That book was a huge hit. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this one's about Michelangelo starring Charlton Heston, which of course is a very strange casting choice. Uh, also strange, it was directed by Carol Reed, who I guess hadn't had a hit in a long time when this came out in the mid-60s. Uh, and... Uh, Interestingly, the first twelve minutes of the DVD is an art history lesson. It doesn't. The film doesn't actually start until oh, until twelve minutes in, so you get a sense. I mean, that's one way to do it. If people don't know about the work, that's one way to introduce it, I suppose. To to have this voiceover as as we see images of the 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 buildings and the sculpture and the art. But uh, but yeah, it's um uh, you know it's it's Charlton Heston and and Rex Harrison who I think as the Pope basically <laughs> giving Heston the orders to go 
and paint the Sistine Chapel, and then then comes the torture and the the anxiety and the difficulty and the long years of painting, and and uh, and some of that is is fine. It's it's very much of its time. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's just I think if you can get your head around Charlton Heston as Michelangelo, uh, you know there might be something here for you. My fair Vatican. <laughs> Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Well, getting back to Andy Warhol, probably one of the most filmed artists of our lifetime uh, prior to his untimely demise. Um, uh, he shows up in a film that's actually about another artist, uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat, um, which was uh, directed by a visual artist himself, and uh, which is a, just Schnabel, I believe. Yeah, uh, Julian, Julian Schnabel yeah. directed the film. And, um, you know, it's it's a great portrayal of, of the art scene in New York city in the 1980s through the eyes of this guy who was kind of a graffiti artist although from the looks of the film mostly he just kind of tagged things yeah <laughs> and yeah and uh, and but that grew into uh into this really arresting visual style that kind of captured the i guess shall we say the pre-giuliani uh, <laughs> uh new york scene sort of yeah hustle and and uh and 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 vibrancy of, of New York City before it was uh, completely disnified, and uh, of course uh, Basquiat's mentor was Andy Warhol, uh, a flesh and blood Andy Warhol, as opposed to the mystical imaginary Andy Warhol of weirdos. Um, here we get uh, a real life Andy Warhol played by someone who not only knew him but sang about him, David Bowie, uh, who apparently wears uh, Warhol's original wigs. Is that right? I didn't this, know that. I don't know if that's just like a bit of promotional bump for this film, or if it's actually true. Like it's. It's quite possible that maybe Warhol gave him one as a present, or, or or Schnabel. You know, they were friends, so it's quite possible that Schnabel came into possession of of uh, some of that stuff. I think there, I think there was a bit of an auction uh, after he passed away. So, um, so I guess he's there in spirit uh, while Bowie's playing him. Um, you know, and Bowie actually had the song about Andy Warhol from his Hunky Dory album in the early '70s, which and apparently Warhol hated the song <laughs> when. <laughs> When he heard it, is that right? Which Bowie was crushed, of course. Um, but I guess eventually they 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 made up. <laughs> they were, or Bowie explained it to him how it was a tribute, I guess. But um, you know, he's a fascinating character because he you know he has that potential to be completely spaced out and, and nonsensical, or incredibly insightful and uh, straightforward. And then I think we get a bit of both Bowies or both uh, Warhols in the portrayal. And of course, a young Jeffrey Wright, who's fantastic. As uh, as Basquiat in this film, yeah, absolutely. You know, and it, what I was saying earlier about the the genre conventions that kind of make me nuts. Uh, the they're com- and, but the part of the these stories I like is when there's a community of artists and you you sort of see the various struggles and you start to maybe get to know some of the the other characters who might be famous or might not, but they place you know rich supporting roles. And this is a film is absolutely an ensemble. It is genuinely about. 
uh, Basquiat, Jean-Michel Basquiat, uh, played, as you mentioned, Jeffrey Wright is just terrific. He played, what a great role for him. And, and he is such a great actor. And I'm so glad to see that he's still working regularly, you know, in James Bond movies or in <laughs> Westworld. Like every time I see him, I'm like, Jeffrey Wright, so good to see you. He's, he's, he's really talented. Uh, here is, is wonderful role. And, uh, but he's not asked to carry the whole film because he's, he's arrayed, uh, a cast, an amazing cast around him. Uh, Claire Forlani, who plays Gina. It's a lot of the film is a love story between Basquiat and, and Gina. Uh, but also Willem Dafoe, Gary Oldman, Parker Posey, Dennis Hopper, Christopher Walken, Benicio del Toro, Paul Bartel, Lenia Lowenshawn and Courtney Love and even Sam Rockwell shows up as a thug. This is pre-stardom <laughs> Sam Rockwell. Yes. Uh, and then David Bowie is Andy Warhol. Oh, and Michael Wincott as well. That's who, right. Uh, who kind of narrates it too. Yeah, yeah. He's in it. Uh, unmistakable voice. Yeah, I love I love him. I love his voice. Uh, and it's and he's someone who doesn't work a lot. But uh, interestingly, I just saw him. We just saw him the other day in uh, in uh, Ghost in the Shell. He has a, a brief role in the beginning as as a as a as a as a, as a like a the, the like a diplomat something he gets he gets some he gets hacked oh he's like the corporate honcho guy yeah yes. that's right he gets hacked but uh, but he is an actor who I also really like so anyway all, in all all told it's uh, he, there is a great assemblage of of really powerful actors that bring this to life this story and. Um, you know, and Schnabel has a wonderful uh, sense of the place. He created like late seventies, eighties New York art scene. You really get a sense of what it might have been like. And he's he's also uh, a fan of of using a lot of music in the film. And I think that that was kind of a a style of nineties Hollywood that the music was maybe overused. I think a lot of fans of of uh, Scorsese made movies in the era. But uh, <laughs> there's a great use of the Rolling Stones, Public Image Limited, The Pogues. Uh, a wonderful Van, Van Morrison's take on Dylan's It's All Over Now, Baby yeah. Blue, uh, Grandmaster Flash, The White Lines, and a couple of great Tom Waits songs. So all of that, I think, helps bring texture to the film. Um, yeah, so so I, yeah, I, I really liked it. Again, it was is the community art scene is what I think I'm more interested in than the than the tortured artist, and so that's why I think this one worked for me so well. Well, and and he's not terribly tortured. Uh, no, that's you know, true. I mean. It's it ends abruptly. He died young uh, from a drug overdose. Yeah. So it wasn't like a long, slow decline or anything like that. So we don't have to suffer through that. He was kind of at the peak of his powers in a way, but he also had this need to escape from his past. His, his mother was in a in a psychiatric hospital, which was something that haunted him through mm -hmm. his life and then kind of seeped into his work. Um but he he's not uh, and you know he has issues with the people in his life and 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 success does affect him yes um, as much as he'd like to pretend that it didn't because he he seems like this kind of wayfish you know man child kind of floating through the art world but but you know it, it fame and success does kind of it, it almost gives him this protective layer that he abuses to a certain degree you know where, and and doesn't necessarily treat people. As well as he could, as as time goes by, but um, and 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 Wright gives a very natural performance. I I, I mean, I like Jeffrey Wright as an actor. I'm always happy to see him and stuff. But I find, in in, in these days, you know, you get a very Jeffrey Wright performance. And mm. It's usually very intense, and 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 um, you know, there'll be some some mannerism about it that kind of defines it. I I always I, his Boardwalk Empire character comes to mind as this really kind of intense and you know laser sighted kind of 
bad guy, and, and here he's just so effortlessly natural. It's, it's just, true. It seems like such like it, it. I keep forgetting who I was watching yeah. playing basketball. He's very relaxed, but I mean, you know, he's a champion actor, and I'm sure he'll do other stuff down the road that is in the same vein, provided you know somebody gives him the, the right kinds of roles. Yeah, no, I agree, and and it, something else about the film, I think, is powerful and worth mentioning is the fact that he was African-American uh, and the character, you know, basket an African-American mm. artist who in and Haitian. Uh, yes, that's right. And, uh, and, and very much in this white scene. Mm. And so the challenges he had being black in New York city and the racism that he encountered is regularly, we're regularly reminded of that as we go through the story. Uh, there's this scene where he's eating, uh, lunch at a restaurant at a high-end restaurant with his I guess at that point ex-girlfriend and uh, there are these like you know uh, Wall Street suits sitting behind him all like looking at him and smoking cigars and you just you know you just get the sense of of what what the world of, of New York City was like for someone uh, in his position at that time that's a great scene and so is the one with Christopher Walken who just shows up for one scene to play a fairly clueless tv interviewer it's yeah. it's, a, it's it's actually a great performance by walken who's you're not maybe not used to see him play kind of a, a doofus in a yeah. way but he shows up and he's got he's aggressive and he's actually quite mean-spirited yeah I think, in his, his and he's got all these preconceived notions about basquiat and is trying to put him into this you know urban black artist box and all this kind of thing and and he's he doesn't want to be defined that way it's just you know this is just my vision it's yeah. not because of who I grew up with or the color of my skin. This is just what I see and, and, and how I portray it. And, you know, and he just, he shuts them down with, with, you know, just, you know, the wave of a cigarette. It's, yes. it's, it's a great scene. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that's the thing. And the, the film, I mean, if, if it does have a flaw, maybe because it's kind of patchworky because it's, you know, it's like every famous person has to have the kind of their scene um, or whatever throughout the film. And, and sometimes it's a bit distracting. Like, I'm not sure what Courtney Love's character was all about, but it's she's, true. She she's, just, she just yeah. kind of shows up. And uh, I mean, she's not bad in the scene, but it doesn't really connect to, to other things. I just, you know, just maybe just how he was perceived walking down the street, I guess, you know, by passersby who recognized him or didn't recognize him because he's such a striking character. Um, but that that's not a problem. I, I mean, the film moves along really briskly from one scene to the next, just because every scene has something intriguing in it that keeps you riveted as as it goes along, and um, uh, you know, and, and it's, it is quite a quite a good portrayal of that time, and I, and I like that he's, you know, his his anger is tempered by his artwork. You know, that, that he doesn't always need to express it personally against people around him because he can put it on the canvas and. So that makes it uh, a little less of that tortured yeah. feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I wanted to mention another film that sort of tries to depict the same era in New York art, and that's the uh, the um, Martin Scorsese segment of New York <laughs> Stories from 1989. This is an interesting film in that it's something you just don't see very often. It's a triptych. Three filmmakers do sort of short, short-ish films, and they release them together. It was Woody Allen, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, and Scorsese, and I think the the Allen part segment is very funny. Coppola's is a little disappointing, but Scorsese's oh, is pr- beyond disappointing. Yeah, it's it's not so great. It's abysmal. Um, but the Scorsese's is pretty great, and maybe my favorite. I think uh, Nick Nolte in full bluster plays a painter in this enormous New York loft space that he shares with his girlfriend, much younger, Rosanna Arquette, who is definitely getting bored with him. And it's about their sort of obsessive dysfunctional relationship in in the 80s art scene. But uh, it's, yeah, mo- for the most part, it's a two-hander. And, uh, but we do see there are some party scenes as uh, 
you know, and gallery scenes where where Nolte's character is being feted for his his work, and and uh, it has a nice little twist at the end where where we sort of see that the kind of torture that Nolte's character goes through is something more or less his his own doing. Like he he is someone who uh, who who feeds off of that uh, that kind of like self. Uh, pity and and anxiety and uh, I think it has I think it's it's very witty and very smart about about some of these sort of artistic temperaments that are get mm. celebrated in these kinds of movies but really really what is it really about I mean you know is it necessary to be so angst ridden to cr- be a, a creative genius well well if you watch these movies many of them you would think yes that is the fact in fact the case but but uh, but yeah I, that's the thing I liked about New York stories that and that story in particular I thought was very funny and and very uh, self-aware yeah that was that was one that I didn't I mean I remember seeing that film being really disappointed in the Coppola one is about like this kind of whimsical cutesy kids tale that just was so saccharine that it just made me sick and then uh, you know and then you, I think maybe the contrast between that and the Coppola or the, the Scorsese story about the Nick Nolte's artist threw me off a little bit and it didn't I didn't love it on first uh, viewing um, and it wasn't until I saw it again years later that I kind of got what it was that it was actually turning that stereotype on its ear and maybe it helped that I'd seen more tortured artist biopics by that point um and uh you know and i saw what it was doing and and, and how great Nolte's performance there truly is um oddly enough scorsese played van gogh in um in uh kira kurosawa's dreams okay which was like a a, a, ser- a a kind of an anthology film kurosawa made based on a series of of i guess of dreams that he had had and and um you know each sort of notable for its visual splendor and uh there's one where we meet uh, Van Gogh in the in the field shortly before he uh, commits his final deed, and then Scorsese plays this very philosophical and yeah. and uh, f- strangely lucid <laughs> version of the artist. Although right. you know, of course, but you know, all, all these ideas are coming out of his mouth at a million miles a minute, as you might expect, and 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 then he just goes off and. You know, takes out his revolver and you see right. the, the crows flying off uh. <laughs> from the shot. You know, but but it's worth. It's it's not one of Kurosawa's better films, but it's because it's an anthology film. Uh, oddly enough, kind of mm-hmm. New York stories, it does have that interesting kind of flow from one story to the next that makes it worth seeing. And you've seen Vincent and Theo as well. This yes, is speaking of Vincent. Yeah, yeah, uh, Altman's film. I haven't seen that, but uh, I gather it's very much worth catching up. Well, with. I saw it when it came out, and and. Uh, you know, it was kind of Altman's return from the wilderness, if you will. It was his first kind of, even even though it was more of a kind of an art house indie kind of film, it was his first kind of hit on that level after a series of films based on plays that weren't terribly successful. We'll come back to the five and dime, Jimmy Dean. Jimmy Dean was probably the best of that bunch, but there were a number of films that just went nowhere. And then, you know, and then he went on to do The Player and, uh, and Shortcuts and Pret-a-Porter which was less successful, but, uh, but, but Vincent and Theo is kind of like his first step towards his Later late, work. late career yeah. kind yeah. of resurgence. And, uh, it's, it really just focuses on the relationship between the brothers, which I mean, is, is certainly a big part of, uh, Kirk Douglas and, uh, and his brother in uh, lust for life. It's certainly an ongoing thread through the film, but here it's, it's a little more concentrated. You don't get so much of his relationship to other artists like okay. Gauguin and the impressionists and all that kind of thing. Um, you know, and it's about the relationship between the brothers and how one kind of believed in the art as frustrating as the brother was. And Tim Roth, um, uh, you know, certainly a more modulated Van Gogh than, uh, than Kirk Douglas. Uh, and he gives a terrific performance. Um, 
I'm trying to think of how early in his career this was. I, I guess it was, uh, it was 19, early, early 90s. Yeah, 1990. Uh, I mean, Roth, I, I think, you know, the hit. He was in the hit, but he was he was a, a jobbing British yeah, actor. Yeah, more, more of a the, character actor at yeah, this point. Yeah, through the so 80s, yeah. Breakthrough role for him, and, and he, he's quite wonderful. I mean, I, you know, I, I need to go back and watch it again because I'm a big Altman fan. It's just not one of his films that's more accessible mm-hmm. these days. But, uh, you know, and of course, like, Lust for Life, they try to find the original locations and all that, and it's 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 very effective and and I think uh, much more successful in a way that by concentrating on that relationship and and trying not to cram so much in and it's there's there's a real tenderness between the brothers and and um, uh, and really captures that kind of connection that only brothers can have. So as we conclude our uh, look at artists on film, uh, there's just a few I wanted to mention. Well, I, I have I put together a list of films I'd like to see, not all of which I have seen. Uh, certainly, you know, the stories of female artists, I want to uh, see more of those kinds of stories. Uh, I haven't seen Camille Claudel from 89, Isabella Johnny and Gerard Depardieu. This is a hard movie actually to find these days. Yeah, I was uh, not a fan. Of, I saw it when it came out. And yeah. I, uh, it was... It was just, it was always raining and everybody was, that, I mean, it, it seemed to really push the tortured art on both sides of the fence. I mean, yes. Rod- Rodin played by Depardieu is such a jerk. Yes. And, and she is like so codependent. Right. <laughs> was, you know, and I love Isabella Johnny, but, but, uh, th- this film just, uh, was so depressing. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and I, I hate to use that label cause it seems like a, you know, just cause it's. You know, she always seems to be in the mud or something, mm-hmm. or wet, or uh, it, it, it just, it's a, it was a real slog. And, um, and, and then there's a Camille Claudel, 1915. 15, yes, which came out a few years ago. Also a little hard to find, Juliette Binoche plays her sort of towards, I guess, the end of her life. I yeah, think. well, she spent a, most of her later years in, a, in an asylum, I believe. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know, not a, not a happy occurrence. No. Um, one thing I, I would recommend to anyone who hasn't seen it is Anne Fontaine's Coco Avant Chanel from 2009. And it's about how Chanel basically, uh, she changed the world with a little black dress. And you know what? fashion movies about fashion probably could be our a whole other podcast <laughs> yes. but uh but i uh i really never realized how powerful an impact her work had and how it changed the whole look of the 20th century in a way and uh and i really i really love it and audrey tattoo is really good yes. in it so so that's something worth seeing um my my list of of other artist movies is incomplete. Uh, there's apparently a, a John Malkovich as as Klimt. There's Andy Garcia as Modigliani. Oh, I'd like to see that. Uh, yeah, there's even Robert Pattinson as Salvador Dali in Little Ashes. Oh, and uh, and uh, Joan Joan Allen plays Georgia O'Keeffe in Georgia O'Keeffe from 2010, directed by Bob Balaban, also starring Jeremy Irons. So so there is more oh, wow. films to be discovered there in this genre. One I did. Find find uh, on Netflix and watched was Renoir from 2012. And it's a French film. Um, and like Mr. Turner, it tries to replicate the colors and scale and beauty of the painter in some ways. And I think actually in this case, it's more or less successful. It's a, it's a Pierre-Auguste Renoir, of course. Um, but it's it's a such a beautiful looking film. Uh, and, and the thing it does to undercut that sort of like tortured artist thing is it's Renoir in his older age. He's he's very much all whiskery and he's very stately and he basically paints all day in his sprawling country home on the Riviera. It's a, and he's cared for by a staff of women and he paints nudes. And so basically that's what we're seeing. <laughs> um, but it's, a, it's not about him as much as it's about his relationship with his two younger sons, uh, Coco, the, the surly youngest one, and then the middle one, Jean, 
who is just home from the war. He's been he's sort of walking wounded. Uh, and he turned out, of course, to be a master filmmaker. Yes. So it's about that connection. It's about fathers and sons. And I think in that regard, and in, in generations of artists, I think in that way, it's a much more uh, interesting portrait than the, and, and, and uh, you know, subverts some of those genre cliches. Well, I'd like to see that. I'd certainly like to see the Medigliani film because uh, I remember, you know, one of my first art appreciation lessons was seeing an exhibit of his at the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. Uh, and seeing, you know, it was a very exhaustive kind of look at his work and how one of his paintings, they had one painting where it was one of his greatest portraits and they had all the sketches leading up to it. So you got to actually see the thought process that went into the pa- painting, you know, what, what starting from the sketches and moving onto the canvas and, and, uh, you know, he, he seems like, you know, and his, his influence of, of, you know, one of the, one of the major French artists who took, uh, inspiration from, uh, other cultures outside of Europe, uh, I think is not to be, uh, dismissed either. So, uh, that sounds intriguing. George O'Keefe for sure. Yes. Uh, Cause I love yes. John Allen. Totally. And, um, you know, I'm, th- I mean, they'll continue to make these movies. They, they always, they, they seem to be an, an easy road to high drama <laughs> for some filmmakers. Like it's almost like everyone wants to have that one film about an artist under their belt, I guess. Um, yeah. I need to go back and see. There was one about Rembrandt uh, with Charles Lawton oh, from wow. the 1930s um, that I would like to go go back and, and revisit. And uh, I did see The Night Watch, um, Paul Greenaway, I believe. Yeah, Peter Greenaway. Uh, Peter yeah. Greenaway, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, brought it to the Atlantic Film Fest. I think he was actually here. He was, with yeah. The he, film. Spoke, he spoke. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I saw The Night Watch in Amsterdam when I was there as a kid. And, uh, you know, it was behind glass and the lights were down. You had to go in at a certain time and they'd bring up the lights so you could look at it for like five minutes and then they shuttle you out of the room. But, you know, it still made an impact, you know, just that whole experience. And then seeing this, this quite huge painting. So to the seat of the night watch and see everything that went into it and the kind of the social meaning behind the painting and, and the people that, that posed for it, um, you know, just, just to focus on that one piece of art, uh, I thought was, was a pretty impressive project. And that pretty much wraps up our look at uh, paintings about artists and art and, uh, the tortured world of, uh, the man with the brush and the women with the clay. Um, I hope you enjoyed this show. And of course, don't forget to visit your local art galleries as often as you can. They need all the support they can get in this day and age. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, of course, you can visit us on our Facebook page or uh, send us a note at Twitter at LendsMeYourEars uh, or email LendsMeYourEarsPodcast at gmail.com. And I'm personally on Twitter as at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Yeah, and I'm on Twitter, the name of my blog, at Flaw in the Iris. And uh, if you really feel like supporting us, of course, we have a Patreon, which you can visit and uh, and send some money our way to help keep things going. And um, don't forget that we'd also like to thank the folks at CKDU for their use of their facilities to record every week and also the Village Soundcast Network for putting it all together. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.